Book Four, Chapter Four, Part Three of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by HearHis.com. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lear. Book Four, Organization, Chapter Four. Part Three, Limpieza. At length, Philip the Fourth was induced, in a pragmatica of February tenth, sixteen twenty-three, to attempt some amelioration of existing conditions. Anonymous communications were to receive no attention, and precision as to dates and persons was required in alleging punishment inflicted by the Inquisition. Witnesses were prohibited to testify as to common rumor unless they could allege reasons and details. Some tribunals, especially colleges, were so rigorous that they required not only proof of limpieza, but also that no doubts had been expressed, whereby many families had been unjustly defamed through the malice so frequent in these matters, all of which was forbidden for the future. A significant clause pointed out that, in the early days, persons sometimes confessed to matters about which there was no other evidence, and such confessions, unsupported by external proofs, were not to be prejudicial to their descendants. The practice of many persons in compiling books called Libros Verdes, or Del Bercero, fabricated with no greater authority than their own malignity, was condemned because they caused irreparable injury and injustice and disturbance of the public peace, seeing that many persons gave evidence based only on having read such books. Anyone possessing books or papers calling in question the limpieza or nobility of others was therefore commanded to burn them under pain of five hundred ducats and two years of exile. Then, to place some limit on the multiplication of investigations, it was decreed that when there had been tres actos positivos, three positive decisions affirming limpieza or nobility, it should be deemed a proved and settled matter for the party involved and his lineal descendants, not thereafter to be called in question, provided always that the decisions were made with full knowledge of the case by proper tribunals, which were defined to be the Inquisition, the Council of Military Orders, the Order of St. John, the four principal colleges of Salamanca, the two principal ones of Valladolid and Alcala, and the Church of Toledo. Considering the acute perception of existing evils displayed in the preamble to the law, the slender restrictions imposed manifest the strength of the prejudices to be overcome. Slight as they were, the Inquisition and the Council of Military Orders, after nominally accepting the law, proceeded vigorously to nullify the provision of the Tres Actos Positivos. A writer in 1629 tells us that they had succeeded in requiring regular investigations in spite of the production of the three acts, they also held that these only related to parents and grandparents, and that they were conclusive only as to the articles covered by them, and not as to the new points that would require fresh examinations, 
and thus the fees of the officials and the anxieties of the applicants remained undiminished. As regards the character of the testimony received, the secrecy of the procedure renders credible the assertion of Escobar, in his commentary on the law, that there was little, if any, improvement. There was some mitigation of rigor in an order of the Suprema about 1645, that when an applicant could prove the tres actos positivos, it was not necessary to push investigations as to his great-grandparents. Somewhat halting was another rule promulgated in 1639, requiring submissions to the Suprema of matters more than a hundred years old, before rejecting the applicant, but this was withdrawn in 1654. The futility of the system and its unfortunate influence are forcibly set forth by the writer of 1629, who tells us that those who succeed best in their proofs are the poor peasants, whose grandparents have been forgotten, and the great nobles against whom no one dares to testify. The chief sufferers are the lesser nobility and gentlemen, too conspicuous for their ancestry not to be known, and too powerless to exclude adverse witnesses. Everybody knows that he who has friends succeeds, and that he who has enemies fails, irrespective of the truth, and thus the statutes wholly fail of their object. This is facilitated by the secrecy enabling the enemy to produce false witnesses, and the accomplice to bribe and bring forward perjured testimony, so that it is notorious that in no other class of cases are the results so fallacious. In this way, there has been created a sort of factitious nobility, that of limpieza, the processors of which look down with contempt on the old nobility of the land. Another evil of magnitude is the fearful waste of money. He who succeeds, after paying his agents for things too scandalous to be described, finds himself penniless, and he who fails has not enough money left to make another attempt. His proofs are destroyed, and he hangs around the court, wasting his life, and perhaps that of his father and sons, and all this under the ban of being infamous, he and his latest posterity. The damage to men's honors is incredible, and also to the kingdom, for strangers call us all Maranos. Moreover, those whose talents would be of great servants to the state and church are lost to us, for they have not confidence to seek to enter a college, and, what a base cobbler can risk and gain, those who are noble and ambitious fail in, because there may be a single drop of tainted blood in their veins. It is also one of the causes of depopulation, for women enter nunneries and men remain celibates rather than inflict infamy on descendants, while large numbers immigrate. Besides all this are the hatreds arising from adverse testimony and the infinite bribery and collusions and perjury, so that Satan has no greater source of winning souls. It is not required for an archbishop of Toledo, but it is insisted on for the battle of his cathedral. It is not demanded for an inquisitor general, but for the messenger of a tribunal, not for the president of Castile, but 
for a familiar or purveyor of a college. This is not exaggeration, for it is merely an amplification in detail of the preamble of the Pragmatica of 1623, and is fully borne out by Escobar in his commentary on the law, that in fact it was the conviction of all sober-minded and thinking men of the period may be gathered from the emphatic testimony of Fray Benito de Peñuelosa, though he does not venture to suggest a remedy more radical than restricting the effect of impurity of blood to five generations. The effects of this proscription were manifold. As early as 1575, Lorenzo Perulli, the Venetian envoy, describes the descendants of the conversos as living like other good Christians, and being among the richest and noblest of the land, yet perpetually incapacitated from the honors and employments which were the ambition of every Spaniard, an evil which was increasing every day. Thus Spain, being full of discontented persons and divided in itself, some rising would be feared, but for the severe execution of justice and the presence of the king. In 1598, Agostino Nani repeats the assertion, the descendants of all who have at any time been punished by the Inquisition live in a state of despair, for to the third and fourth generation they are regarded as infamous and incapable of any office in church or state. Navarrete does not hesitate to suggest that but for the exclusion from public life of all but old Christians of purest lineage, the fatal necessity of the expulsion of the Moriscos might have been averted. They might have been Christianized had they not been driven to desperation and hatred of religion by the indelible mark of infamy to which they were subjected. In fact, the statutes of Limpieza created a caste of pariahs who infected all with whom they might form alliances. But the caste was not recognizable by exterior signs, and no one could tell what corruption of blood he might entail upon his family by any marriage that he might contract. As Fray Salucio says, no one entering into wedlock could make the investigations required by the colleges and the military orders. Thus, the infection was constantly spreading. Every man stood upon a mine which might explode at any moment when some distant kinsman of his own or of his wife might provoke an investigation, during which a taint might be discovered in the common line of ancestry. When we recall the history of the conversos anterior to the 16th century and the enormous operations of the early Inquisition, we can conceive how this indelible stain must have spread throughout society, to be revealed at any moment in the most unexpected places. A writer in 1668 reflects the popular prejudice when he compares a marriage with a man whose father has been penanced by the Inquisition to sleeping in a bed full of lice, or in sheets that have been used by one who has had the itch. Another result was greatly to increase the authority of the Inquisition and the terror which it shed around it, by the fact that at a word it could inflict its undying infamy upon a lineage. To be arrested and cast into the secret prison, 
even without cause, was sufficient. In 1601, Philip III, when instructing the Inquisition to furnish to the Council of Military Orders full information as to anyone, when called upon, required the report to include not only the imprisonment of an ancestor subsequently acquitted, but even the fact of an accusation never acted upon. It can readily be understood that even a summons to appear, in a matter not of faith, was felt acutely through the whole kindred. In the long struggle at Bilbao over the visites de navios, the corregidor Mendienta took an active part against the commissioner Linguina, who, to silence him, caused him to be cited by the tribunal of Logorno. This caused intense excitement, and the Signoria of Biscay had him accompanied by two caballeros. When he demanded to know the charges against him, there were none forthcoming, and he was dismissed. The affair was regarded as so serious that the Council of State presented a consulta to the Queen Regent in October 1668, setting forth that the citation might lead to the disgrace of his family and posterity, and suggesting that some relief should be found for him. All this is of supreme importance in estimating the benignity and mercy of which the Inquisition was constantly boasting. The sentences rendered may frequently appear to us as trivial, but the penance was the smallest part of the penalty. Villa Nueva, as we have seen, was condemned merely to abjure for light suspicion of heresy, and to a few years' absence from Madrid, but that cast disgrace upon his whole kindred. He and his descendants fell into a class of pariahs, and could form no alliance outside of that caste. Through generations they were branded with an ineffable stigma. To Spanish pundador, the scaffold, were merciful in comparison. The mercy of the Inquisition was more to be dreaded than the severity of other tribunals and men might well beware of incurring the enmity of those who could at discretion consign them and their prosperity to infamy. The Limpiesa test survived the revolution, and purity of blood was as essential under the restoration as under the old monarchy. But there was some relaxation of rigidity. Thus, if a man and wife proved their Limpieza, it sufficed for their children, only a legal certificate of baptism being required. And in the same way the proofs presented by one brother answered for another, on his furnishing evidence of their common paternity. A couple of years was also allowed to appointees in which to put in their proofs, and there was even a case of secretaries admitted without proofs, but with a warning that it would not be allowed again. In the extreme penury of the time, the Suprema imposed a fee for its own benefit of sixty reals on every investigation which the receivers were required to collect and to remit yearly. It was also in receipt of the two percent, levied by the Disposterios de los Pendientes, and one of its last acts was the acknowledgment, February 10, 1820, 
of 360 reals remitted by the Diposterio of Sevilla, which would show that 18,000 reals had passed through its hands. The part of the business which fell to the Suprema was not large. Its first certificate is dated January 3, 1816, and the last one January 4, 1820, the whole number being 108. From these investigations, it would appear that the investigation was scarce more than a formality. The demand for limpieza survived the Inquisition, though with its closure it is not easy to conjecture where any serious proofs could be found. Up to 1859 it was still requisite for entrance into the Corps of Cadets, but in 1860 the Cortes unanimously abolished this survival of prejudice and intolerance. Yet there is still a corner of Spain where that prejudice has proved superior to law. We shall have occasion hereafter to refer to the terrible persecution of the Judaizing New Christians of Majorca in 1679 and 1691. Padre Francisco Garau, S.J., who promptly printed an exulting account of the four autos de fe celebrated in the latter year, tells us that the descendants of conversos formed a community of some two hundred families, living huddled together in the calle and apart from the rest of the population, for there never was intermarriage between them and the old Christians. The people called them Jews, and, on their complaining of this, an offensive nickname was speedily invented, and they were termed chulas, an allusion to their avoidance of pork. They were not allowed to hold public office, although great efforts supported by the government were made by the wealthy and influential among them. The same proscription was exercised by the guilds and brotherhoods, especially by the surgeons, confectioners, candle-makers, grocers, and silk-weavers, so that they were virtually all traders. Thus, there was a solid foundation of inveterate prejudice which was stimulated in 1755 by the malicious reprint of Father Garau's book, followed by the circulation of lists furnished by the secretary of the tribunal of all conversos punished by the Inquisition, comprising all the families of Jewish extraction. This caused a recrudience of ill-feeling, and compliment was made to Carlos III, who responded in sedulous of December 10, 1782, October 9, 1785, and April 18, 1788, ordering that they should not be impeded from residing in any part of Palma or of the islands, that the entrance gate of the calle should be destroyed, and that insults or calling them Jews or chulas should be punished with four years of presidio. They were declared fit for service in army or navy or any other department, and free to exercise all arts and trades, and all this was extended to the descendants of conversos throughout Spain. Yet even an autocratic monarch could not overcome prejudices so deep-rooted. Church and state in Majorca had bitterly opposed the appeal to the throne and had succeeded in postponing action for ten years. The university, in 1776, had revived its statute of limpieza 
and had closed its doors to the proscribed class. When the royal decrees came, they provoked warm opposition on the part of the municipal authorities, who resolved not to yield obedience. It was the force of events, rather than the growth of tolerance, that gradually brought relief. In 1808, when the nation rose against the French, they were admitted to military service. But when the local levies were ordered to the mainland, there was a mutiny in which the barrio de Seguel was sacked. After the reaction of the Restoration, under the Revolution of 1820, they were enrolled in the National Guard, but when came the Counter-Revolution of 1823, they were disarmed, and the rabble promptly sacked their houses and made bonfires of what was too cumbrous to steal. After the death of Fernando VII, the enforced constitutionalism of Cristina government restored them practically to citizenship and military service, and gradually their exclusion from civil office disappeared. Popular aversion, however, was not to be overcome by statute. It was rekindled in 1856 by a suit brought to establish their right to membership in the Circulo Bilar, or Bilaric Club, which led to republication of the essential portions of Father Garau's book. This was answered in 1858 by Tomás Beltrán Solier, from whom we learn that the new Christians were still excluded from Christian society and continued to dwell in the calle. They were refused all public offices and admission to guilds and brotherhoods, so that they were confined to trading. They were compelled to marry among themselves, for no one would contract alliance with them, nor would the ecclesiastical authorities grant licenses for mixed marriages. Since then, there has been some abatement of popular prejudice, but the latest accessible view of the situation in 1877 by Padre Taroni, a priest of the proscribed class, represents the clergy as still obstinately impervious to all ideas of extending fellowship to their fellow believers and as busily fanning the dying embers of class hatred based on events two centuries old. Wise statesmanship in Spain would have sought the unification of the races within its borders. In place of this, race hatred was stimulated in the name of religion, with the deplorable results recorded in Spanish history. End of Book 4 Chapter 4 Part 3 This recording by HearHis.com